Once Upon a Time is right now, here on Fable City Radio, with your host, Martha Whitehouse. In this week's episode of Fable City Radio, we'll be exploring the story of Puss in Boots. Puss in Boots is an old Italian fairy tale originally written by Giovanni Straparola, sometime between 1550 and 1553. Another version of the story was written by Giambattista Basile, and later, in 1697, it was published with other stories in a book by Charles Perrault. What I love best about this story is how it captures the essence of what cat lovers have always known about the secret personalities of our cats. This story, as many fairy tales do, describes animals having very human characteristics, giving Puss lots of anthropomorphic qualities, but the essential characteristics of real cats are also very recognizable in the story of Puss in Boots. Puss is a character most people have heard of, but they often don't remember the actual plot of the story. Puss's appearances in the Shrek movies, voiced by Antonio Banderas, did breathe a lot of life into the character and exposed many more people to this delightfully arrogant cat. Nothing can beat a well-dressed, egocentric animated cat engaging in a duel and then yakking up a hairball. I loved the character's appearance in the movie and I kept hearing Antonio's voice saying, I am Puss in boots. So much fun. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy my version of the real story of Puss in Boots. Once upon a time, there lived an old miller. He lived at his mill with his three sons, his donkey, and the mill cat. Every day the boys worked at milling grain, the donkey hauled the grain, and the cat was charged with catching any mice who wanted to eat the grain. The miller was proud of his two oldest sons, but he thought his youngest son was a bit of a simpleton. When the old miller died, he left his sons all of his worldly goods. The eldest son got the mill, the middle son got the mule, and the youngest son received only the cat. The youngest son was very unhappy with this arrangement and said to himself, This is a very bad situation. What can I do to make a living when I have nothing but a cat? My older brothers can work with each other and live much the same way as they always have. But once I have eaten the cat, I will be starving. The cat overheard what the youngest son said, and he understood English, although he pretended not to most of the time. He was a little hurt by the young man's words, as he had always been fond of the boy, who occasionally fed him bits of bacon. So he decided to speak up for the first time. Do not despair of your situation, young master, for I can make your fortune for you better than anyone. All you need to do is give me your best pair of boots and a drawstring sack with some grain and scraps in it. The boy thought about the cat's offer. He didn't think it was very bright to trust a cat, but then again, he had always admired the cat's cleverness in catching mice and rats. He had once even seen the cat play dead to catch some mice who were after the mill's grain stores. He gave the cat his pair of tall boots, the sack he requested, and he threw in a hat with a big plume on it for good measure. The cat put on the boots and hat and started walking around upright like a person. 
He slung the bag over his shoulder and walked out the door. Puss went out to a nearby field and set a trap to catch a rabbit. He opened the bag and lay down next to it as if he were dead. An unsuspecting and fat young rabbit smelled the food, and seeing that the cat was dead, he poked his head into the bag to eat it. The cat leapt to his feet and shoved the rabbit into the bag, drawing the drawstring tightly closed. Proud of himself, the cat set off for the castle of the king. He had heard one way and another that the king was very fond of fresh game, but his hunters had been unlucky of late, so the king only had chicken and eggs to eat, and he was becoming very gloomy. The cat told the master at the castle gate that he had brought a very fine gift of game for the king, so the gatekeeper let him in, and he was shown into the king's chambers. The king said, "'What have we here? Who has let this well-dressed cat into my chambers?' "'I have come with a gift for your majesty,' said the cat quickly, and he opened his bag and produced the fine fat rabbit. "'Game!' exclaimed the king. "'Finally, fresh meat for my table. I can see that you are no ordinary feline, Master Cat. You may visit me at any time if you bring such gifts as these.' The cat bade him farewell, and the very next day Puss used his bag to trap two plump partridges for the king's supper. The king was again delighted with the cat's offerings, and this time Puss swept the hat from his head and bowed deeply to the king as he said, Your Highness, I must tell you that these delicacies are actually a gift from my master, Lord the Marquis of Carabas. He asked me to deliver these to you with his compliments that this fanciful name would be appropriate for the new life he planned for the youngest son of the miller. Tell Lord Carabas that his gifts and his fine hunter are greatly appreciated, said the king. In token of your efforts, if you open your bag, I will show you my gratitude. The cat opened his sack, and the king had two of his men pour an impressive number of gold coins into it. The cat slung the heavy bag over his shoulder, bowed to the king once more, and returned to the mill. The youngest son was amazed by the gold, and Puss said, You see, I have started making your fortune already, but this won't last forever. You must trust me a little longer so I can secure your place in this world. Impressed, the young miller agreed to do anything the cat asked of him. Tomorrow, said the cat, you must go bathing at the river. I will show you the exact spot, and you must go at exactly 11 o'clock in the morning. You see, the clever cat had overheard the king's plan to ride out the next day with his daughter for a tour of the lands in his kingdom, and he had made note of the proposed route. The next morning, the cat went out to the bend of the river, where he had directed the miller's son to bathe, and he hid himself in the bushes. When the young man arrived, he stripped off his clothes and jumped in the river. The cat darted out, snatching up his master's clothes, and he hid them under a rock. Soon Puss saw the king's carriage coming down the road. The cat jumped out, yelling, Help! Help! My master, the Marquis of Carabas, is drowning in the river! The king, recognizing the cat from all of his hunting gifts, swiftly ordered his coachman to help the miller's son out of the water. My master's fine clothing was stolen by thieves while he bathed. I yelled, stop, thief, but alas, I could not catch them. 
The king looked kindly upon the marquis, who had sent him the fine gifts of game, and ordered his carriage to return to the castle at once, so that the young marquis might be properly clothed. A servant wrapped the miller's son in one of the king's own cloaks. The king's pretty daughter turned a favorable eye on the shivering youth when he entered the carriage. As the carriage began to turn around, Puss called out to the king. I'm sure the Marquis would love for you to see the rest of his lands today, so return as quickly as you can. We most certainly shall, said the king, and his carriage headed back toward the castle. The clever cat continued down the road and stopped when he saw some people harvesting wheat in a nearby field. He said to them, When the king's carriage comes down this road in a little while, he will ask you whose land this is. You will, without hesitation, tell him that all the land that he can see belongs to your master, the Lord Marquis of Carabas. If you do not, I will make short work of you with my claws. The workers were impressed with the talking cat and decided it might be most prudent to do as he demanded. The cat went further down the road and saw men and women gathering ripe apples in a large orchard, and he called out to them, in a little while, the king will ride past this grove and ask you whose land this is. You must say that the entire orchard, as far as his eye can see, belongs to the Lord Marquis of Carabas. If you do not say this, I will end each and every one of you with my razor-sharp claws. The fruit pickers were also duly impressed with the threats of the talking cat and decided to heed his orders rather than risk his wrath. Finally, Puss came to a large, impressive castle that belonged to a powerful ogre, who ruled the castle, the lands around it, and his entire estate with an iron fist. All who knew him feared him, for he could magically transform himself into any beast he desired, and his transformations into lions and bears kept everyone from ever challenging him. The cat walked up to the door of the castle and pounded on the door as hard as he could. One of the ogre's servants opened the door, and the cat demanded to come in and pay his compliments to the master of the house. The servant thought the little cat might regret the request, but he let him in and showed him to the dining room where the ogre was busy gorging himself at an, at an oversized dining table. His manners were appalling. The appearance of the ogre was usually enough to strike fear in the hearts of all who saw him, but Puss had a plan. My lord, he said, removing his hat and bowing low, what a magnificent home you have. I have heard tell of its grandeur and have come to see for myself. I hear you also have great powers and can do magic. Tis true, I can, said the ogre. But if you don't give me a reason not to, I will soon add your carcass to this little feast I'm enjoying. <laughs> There's not much meat on my bones, said Puss, but I can respect that decision. I must ask you, though, that before you eat me, would you satisfy one point of my curiosity as one gentleman to another? What is your question? asked the ogre. I have heard that with your great power, you can turn yourself into a large wild beast like a lion, said Puss. Yes, I can, said the ogre. And with those words, 
he transformed into a large, ferocious lion that roared mightily and scared the poor cat onto the mantle over the fireplace. He could barely manage the jump in his big boots, but he got there and he looked down at the lion anxiously. The ogre was laughing as he transformed himself back to his usual hideous form. <laughs> now that I've answered your question, you will join me for lunch. I won't take no for an answer. Just a moment, sir. That was not my question, said Puss. I heard that you could change yourself into large predators, but I was wondering if you also possessed enough magic to turn yourself into much smaller creatures, like, um, let's see, a mouse, perhaps? Of course I can, growled the ogre, and immediately he turned into a little gray mouse sitting at the table. The cat pounced at once, putting his superior mouse-catching skills to work, and he ate the ogre all up in two bites. The ogre's often mistreated servants thanked the cat profusely, and he told them that they could soon expect a visit from their new, much kinder master, the Lord Marquis of Carabas. Back on the road to the ogre's castle, the king's carriage carrying the king, his daughter, and the miller's son, dressed in his new handsome royal clothing, continued their trip. They came to a great field of wheat, and the king called out the window, Whose land is this? The workers called back, This land belongs to the most excellent Lord Marquis of Carabas, and they returned to their work. The carriage then came to the impressive apple grove, and the king called out to the fruit pickers, Whose land is this? The workers called back, This land belongs to the most excellent Lord Marquis of Carabas, and they returned to their work. The king looked at his young passenger with even greater respect, and the princess's eyes were filled with love and admiration for the handsome miller's son. Finally, the carriage reached the impressive castle once owned by the ogre. The party alighted from the carriage and went to the door. The servant who had let in the cat opened the door and ushered them in, saying, We've been expecting you. As the king's party walked through the castle, all of the servants bowed to the miller's son, calling him Lord Carabas. And last in line was Puss, standing proudly in his boots. You have made it home at last, he said, and what he said was true. The lowly miller's son was now a marquis and a wealthy man. The king asked him very kindly if he would marry his daughter, who enthusiastically agreed to the match. The king was very happy with his new son-in-law and determined to leave his kingdom to him. The new marquis was happier than he had ever been, and with the princess by his side, he became a great ruler. And what of the cat? He retired and lived in luxury, only chasing mice when he felt like having a bit of sport. And he lived happily ever after. The End I hope you enjoyed Puss in Boots. It's a fun story, but are there any serious lessons in it? One thing that comes to mind for me when I read Puss in Boots is that the common fairy tale theme of simpletons making good gets turned on its head in Puss in Boots. The simple, naive son in Puss in Boots doesn't make his own fortune at all, but he does make a decision to trust his clever cat, 
and sometimes knowing who to trust might be more important than knowing what to do. Would I trust my talking cat in an emergency? I don't know, but I think I'd have to pay attention to her opinion if she started speaking to me in English. There's a lot of parental unfairness in fairy tales, and Puss in Boots is no exception. The miller leaves the youngest child nothing but a cat, and it doesn't seem quite fair. I have to think that this is something that people have wrestled with throughout all the ages of humankind. There's an unfair, judgmental, or even downright cruel parent figure in so many fairy tales that it points to family conflict being one of the biggest issues plaguing human beings. So much so that people are willing to listen to stories exploring the archetypal bad parent over and over again. Joseph Campbell has studied and written extensively about archetype in storytelling and why audiences never tire of it. He wrote a book titled The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In it, he analyzed the ubiquity of the hero's journey in world cultures. He called his theory the monomyth. Some scholars and folklorists have disparaged this theory as non-scholarly and have posited that Campbell's works only considered selective pieces of literature. But in my opinion, there are common threads that run through folklore, fairy tales, and religious stories, and those threads resonate with readers. Here's an example. How many versions of the male buddy-buddy archetype have we all seen in popular entertainment? Think about the plot of the movie Lethal Weapon. A wild, out-of-control super cop is partnered up with a stable, steady family man. They clash at first and even fight, but by the end of the movie, they are fast and loyal friends. There are lots of other movies with the same pattern, and when you look at literature, there are even more of these stories. The earliest may very well be the Epic of Gilgamesh, written sometime between 2100 and 1200 years before the common era of human history. In the Gilgamesh story, Gilgamesh is a legendary but egomaniacal king whom the gods decide to take down a notch by sending a hairy, wild beast man to Earth to best him in battle. The wild man is named Enkidu, and although the two men fight fiercely, they end up respecting each other, and they end up even best friends who go on adventures. Sound familiar? To me, it also sounds similar to other fictional male friend relationships like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Holmes seems to be the wild one in that relationship, with Watson serving as his even-tempered chronicler. Also, Robin Hood and Little John fit this pattern. The Robin Hood story even includes a physical fight between Robin and Little John, which leads to them becoming friends. Other plays and movies feature buddy male characters like Han Solo and Chewbacca in Star Wars, or consider The Odd Couple, where one friend is disciplined and fastidious, and the other is a slob doing irresponsible things. Movie makers and writers never tire of these repeating plot elements because readers and viewers never tire of them. The repeating archetype is a large part of the appeal of fairy tales and one of the main reasons why I love them so much. Okay, I've ventured pretty far afield from talking about Puss in Boots. The timeless popularity of Puss in Boots has inspired writers, composers, artists, and filmmakers. I mentioned in the intro that Puss shows up in Shrek 2, but he also made a stage appearance in the third act of Tchaikovsky's ballet Sleeping Beauty. Christopher Walken played the famous feline in a movie musical adaptation of the story, and Puss even appears in the logo of a Japanese anime studio. He's a very popular cat. Well, that's all I have for now. Remember, if your cat starts talking to you, 
first see a doctor to rule out any health problems. And then maybe listen to his advice. He might surprise you. And join me next week for another story in Fable City Radio.